Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come by, check out our wares, kick the tires, check the undercoating, um, and then maybe uh, become a paid member of the community so we can go on to even grander and greater vistas. Um, Today, I'm very excited to correct a long-standing injustice, and I'm glad we were able to do it before the uh, 400th episode. Um, I've never had Peter Suderman on this podcast before. I'm a fan of Peter's. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of his wife. Um, I, I was a big fan of his dearly departed late dog. Um, and uh, the thing is, is that we have a wide waterfront um, with many weird harbors to explore. So my plan is to start with rank punditry and political stuff and then move on to the more esoteric and obscure things. Um, so with that, uh, Peter Suderman, uh, you are the features editor at Reason Magazine. You write a um, cocktail uh, newsletter, uh, Cocktails with Suderman at, substa- at dot .substack or something along those lines. You'll cocktails with suderman.substack.com. There you go. And uh, welcome finally at last to the remnant. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you, you know, back in the day, I first met you when you worked at um, this little place called National Review, but that was like a million years ago. It was. It was a brief period. I also wrote a, a, a lot about movies for National Review for, for a number of years. Um, so that was uh, that was uh, it was uh, one of the first places I started writing for after I got to Washington, right after I got to college. And the thing that I wanted to do was write about movies, and National Review actually ended up being a, a great outlet for that. Um, I uh, um, remember I think the first time I ever called you on the phone was probably close to twenty years ago. Not quite twenty years ago, maybe fifteen years. Probably ago. about fifteen, sixteen. I, I showed up in Washington in the summer of two thousand five. So I. Um, yeah, and then was in New York, right. you know, for less than a year in 2007 or so, but have basically been in D.C. for 16 years now. So I'm a swamp creature. Yeah. And I need and you live on the hill. Oh, I shouldn't have revealed that, but you do. I live um, close to the Capitol. I wouldn't. Many people would not call where I live the hill, but I live because it's I, a refrigerator live, box or because yeah, it's not the right. It's uh, because there are there are subtle neighborhood distinctions, which the, you know, real estate industrial complex in um, in Washington, D.C. has then further renamed and subdivided things. And um, I But I, yeah, I, well, I, I, live I live in a neighborhood to, nobody's ever heard yeah. of in D.C., even though it's a neighborhood everybody knows exists. I can see the Capitol Dome with about uh, 15 seconds of walking from my house. Nice. OK. And anyway, I called you about, let's call it 14 years ago, 
because you'd been there in a little while. And for I can't remember why, but I desperately needed somebody to explain to me why the sort of generation younger than me or half generation younger than me hated Zach Braff so much. I didn't, <laughs> I, 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 I knew they were right, but I just wasn't following it closely outside of the TV show Scrubs to understand the nuances of it. And I had you give me a, a, a walkthrough on it. And I just remember sending you an email saying, hey, can I give you a call? I need to pick your brain. And then you were not quite prepared that it was going to be about <laughs> a Zach Braff, what, 10 reasons to hate Zach Braff kind of thing. But anyway, I mean, I, I, I assume it has to do with the fact that he wore a shirt that looked like wallpaper in the movie Garden State, which everybody quickly and in some ways correctly found fairly annoying. But it's it's now been so long since I've like read an explainer on why people hate Zach Graff, Zach Braff, Zach Braff, on why people hate Zach Braff. I don't, I'm not even sure I remember. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I can't remember the details either. I mean, it had, definitely had something to do with Garden State um, and a certain pretentiousness of a, of, of a kind that was in the air back then. Uh, but it's funny when you think about how, like, you try to explain to people like you probably have no memory, no living memory of them, but like there was a period from say fall of these, I'm just guessing at the numbers fall of 73 to spring of 74 where Larry Storch was like the most popular comedic actor in America. <laughs> and like now I give points to people to even know that he was Agarn on F troop. Um, but you know, these are the time, you know, life moves on. I have so. seen at least one episode of F Troop, but I definitely don't know who you're talking about. Yeah, F Troop is wonderful. F Troop is is could not be made today. I think is fair. Um, and the Hakawis, who are the native in, who are the Native Americans in it, uh, the indigenous people in it, all have a Yiddish Jewish sensibility to them. And in fact, the reason why the Hakawis got their name is because when they were marching in the wilderness, they fell off a cliff, and one of them said, "Hey, where the heck are we?" Um, and hence that's the name of the Indians. So it's a certain era of humor, um, that we can leave it th at that. All right. This is not an episode of glop. Um, and so we should, we should start with someplace, uh, significant, I guess I should ask you, um, what is, what, what, I hate the word take in the context of something like this. What, what is, what is the range of your feelings about the withdrawal from Afghanistan? Well, I think obviously the immediate human consequences have been pretty tragic. There's no way to look at what's happening there and think that's just going fine and it's great and everybody's happy. Um, at the same time, I, I think that we've been in Afghanistan for far too long and, and you can't stay there forever. And it wasn't obvious what our project was and all of the arguments, even that we should have just stayed with a reduced force, um, you know, and that we're not nation building. That's not what we're doing. Uh, we're we're just there with a small peacekeeping force. I think they don't really reckon with the reality of what we were we were trying to do to begin with, but what also we would have ended up having to do to keep a peacekeeping force there, which is that we would have had to just sort of continually beat back the Taliban in a project of kind of uh, 
maintaining a an unpleasant, a sort of not very functional stalemate, um, upholding a state that couldn't even stand a couple of months on its own without American support. And so in some sense, it was it was a kind of nation building, except it was nation building, you know, with paper mache and and to to sort of say, well, that's the United States' responsibility is to just stay permanently and do that forever is I, I just don't think that's tenable and it's not politically sustainable. It's not um, it's not a good use of our military. And so at some point, someone was going to have to make the difficult decision to withdraw and withdrawal was going to have consequences. There's a metaphor going around that's somewhat vulgar that I will... Um, uh, devulgarize um, for this podcast, but uh, you know, if you if you find yourself with your hand in a in a wasp's nest, there's not a great way to get it out. It's going to hurt somehow or another. There might there might be worse ways. There might be more antagonistic ways. And so, I I think I think it had to be done at some point. I think it probably should have been done more like a decade ago. Um, and, and at the same time, I in no way celebrate just the obvious human consequences, the toll that is being taken, um, uh, right now, um, and probably, uh, in, in the future. Um, I just, I, I think we were put in, you know, I think the, the war had devolved into what is essentially a no-win situation and, um, and it's really unfortunate and, and tragic. So while obviously I agree with you on some of the contours of that, uh, at the heart of it, I just have some profound disagreements. Um, first of all, I mean, but you know, rather than relitigate all of this, other than first of all, to point out that like, I do think it's a bit of a stolen base to say the country couldn't stand even for a few months without us. Um, that didn't have to be that way. You know, it, I, I'm perfectly open to criticize. I mean, the, the amount of people who deserve criticism is really very large, but the decision to withdraw logistical intelligence and maintenance and fueling and all of that support for an army, we trained to rely entirely on those sorts of functions and then say, see, look, they couldn't even fight for a few days after we pulled out is, is really kind of grotesquely unfair. You know, it's like yelling at the vacuum cleaner, for not working after you've unplugged it. And, um, and we can, you know, the Pentagon deserves a lot of blame for that. And I think one of the things that they, that they clearly thought was that since they managed to slow walk and, and roll Trump out of not doing a withdrawal, they kind of assumed they could do it again. And then Biden stepped on the review process and just said, we're doing this, pull the plug on everything. And then they're shocked that when they pull the plug on the, the Afghan army, um, it's, it doesn't work anymore. And, uh, but more broadly, I guess, I guess the question I have for the argument that you're making is that, um, you know, there's, I don't know how to put this. Let's say there's an X and Y axis and the X is lives and the Y is time. Um, the fact that we spent 20 years um, in Afghanistan seems to me preferable than spending two years and 20,000 lives, right? Um, we, or 200,000 lives. 
I'd rather spend time and money than lives, sure. Right. So we spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, and we compared to other wars. You know, if you were to call this a war, um, which I think is a bit of a misnomer for the last 10 years, uh, but if we're going to call it a war, America's longest war, um, then compare it to other wars. And, you know, the casualty rate, the death rate for this war was, by comparison, extremely low. And it was because of the way we organized this to make the Afghan army a force multiplier rather than ourselves, put ourselves in harm's way. And uh, all sorts of things to second guess and quibble about that strategy. But time doesn't, in fact, cost us anything because it's an abstraction. Lives and money cost us real things, and they're different things. And so the, I, this, this metric that it was going on too long without other metrics to... because. Saying going on too long is a stand-in for material things like lie, like blood and treasure. And but time itself is a meaningless thing. And when people say there's no good time to get out, which is sort of the argument that you're making, um, we both agree that that the way Biden got out was pretty disastrous. Um, we but your position seems to me is, is that it would have been kind of disastrous no matter how we got out. I, I disagree with that to a large extent, but I would also just add that sometimes when there's no to, no good time to get out, you don't get out until you get, you change facts on the ground to make for a good time to get out. And we have since Obama been sending the signal, we are going to take our very first opportunity to get out. And that gives the Taliban, gave the Taliban all the incentive in the world to live up to that stupid phrase, you know, NATO has the watches, we have the time. If you tell people you're going to get out, you're telling people, okay, just wait. And um, um, and to me, as a matter of cost-benefit analysis, I don't see where the benefits of this moment outweigh the costs in any significant way. And the more reasonable people who wanted to get us out uh, responsibly, let's say, their argument, sort of like what Biden said three weeks ago, you know, we're going to, you know, can do this responsibly. It won't be Saigon, yada, yada, yada. We'll get every American out. Um, and then he so botched the execution of his plan that it led to this stuff. But let's say he did it successfully and the Afghan government lasted for six months. Um, what a lot of people, including a lot of the Trump people are basically saying is this was inevitable this was a screw up, but eventually the Taliban was going to take over. And my response to that is, you may be right, but basically what you're saying is you're, it would have been better if we told the world that we were surrendering and that we were humiliated by the Taliban more slowly and that the Afghans who relied on us were killed on a longer time horizon uh, than what we're witnessing now. And again, the time thing is a in some ways it's sort of a meaningless part of this to me, if it doesn't come with the attendant things that we usually use, you know, we use time as a stand in for these other metrics. It's not a metric in and of itself. And, um, and saying that this, it would have been inevitable that the Taliban take over is not an argument for saying that we should get out It is an argument for saying, okay, why is, um, you know, why shouldn't we stay until the Taliban can't take over? So that's a lot to unpack. Um, and I think I profoundly disagree with you about the importance of time, but I actually want to start where you started. Um, 
you started by saying it didn't have to be this way. Uh, but by 2020 or 2021, when Trump and Biden began the pullout, it was. After $2 trillion and nearly 2,500 lives lost, right? After 20 years of doing whatever it was we were doing, after 20 years of the United States political and foreign policy leadership making choices and trying to figure out how to do, again, do whatever it was we were trying to do there. And I, I think if you accuse anybody of, uh, of, of trying to do one specific thing in Afghanistan, um, the argument always proceeds with, well, no, we were trying to do the other thing. And there's, it's, so whatever it was we were trying to do, after 20 years, we hadn't done it. After a huge expenditure of, of fiscal resources and manpower and uh, elite political uh, brain share, it hadn't been done. And so the question becomes, would it ever have been done? In fact, it looked like, if you sort of look at the, traje the trajectory of uh, the fight with the Taliban, even before the pullout, it looked like it was just going to be lost more slowly in a lot of ways. Um, and so this is where, you know, I think, uh, you know, and, and, and you, you also sort of said, well, look, if we had pulled out and left them with resources that they had trained for, things might have gone better. And again, I don't want to say that this was the only way to to evacuate, uh, to end our presence in Afghanistan. I don't want to say that it couldn't have been done uh, more smartly at all. At the same time, that's sort of an argument that we had to leave some resources there. And as long as we are, are leaving resources and, a, and some footprint there, you're saying that's that's an argument in some ways that we should be that I mean, that's we're continuing a, a even if it's a smaller war, we're continuing a war there. Um, and so you know, it is an argument that they couldn't, in some sense, stand on their own. Um, and so this is where I think I want to come back to time. And you sort of say it, you're arguing that time is a meaningless metric, that it doesn't really matter, um, that it's just a stand in for other things. But I, I actually think sort of the other way around. Resources uh, are stand ins for time, because time is the most important thing in our short lives in in the life of a of an individual human or a society or a nation time is all we have and especially when you're a rich country especially when you have uh, a lot of fiscal resources and the ability to deploy manpower and make decisions the most important thing you should be thinking about is how you spend your time um time is life uh, how you spend your days is how you spend your life, right? And how and that's true. That's true for me. If I'm spending my days watching movies and making cocktails and writing op-ed columns, and it's true for a nation if it's spending huge amounts of time and resources um, on a completely bogged down foreign policy project. Uh, it's it's all we have. It's all we'll ever have. And so I think at some point, if your project, and again whatever that project is, is not going well. If you have expended a massive amount of time and resources on it, you have to make a decision at some point to pull the plug or just admit that you're never going to and that the project you are, you are engaged in is, in fact, what that means is if you're really never going to, if, if you say, we're really never going to pull out, then you are admitting, yep, this is a forever war and Afghanistan is now a protectorate of the United States and we are engaged in an empire project of some sort. Um, and if that's the argument people want to make, then they should go ahead and make that argument. But 
I, I don't see any, any political will for it. I think, um, just if, if nothing else, I, I think any politician who just actually said, look, we've got to stay there forever because that's our job. I, I don't think that that political project would last very long. I don't think that's very tenable. And so you have to find some other thing to do that the public will support and be okay with. Um, and what's the other thing? Eventually it's, we could lose slowly or we could lose quickly. And we chose to lose, well, we chose to lose slowly for a long time and then to lose quickly this year. Yeah. So, I mean, again, one of the reasons I want to have you on is to not talk about Afghanistan, but so I can, I'm going to put aside some of my big disagreements on, on this for another time. Um, but on this question of time, I think you're just making a really fundamental metaphysical category error. You and I, time matters a great deal because the laws of entropy apply to us. We're not getting younger, right? Um, Speak for yourself. (laughs) Time works differently for nation states. Time is is not the same metric for uh, impersonal institutions that that, that, that live on intergenerationally the way it is for biological life forms. And so when you say what is true for people is also true for governments, it's just, that's just factually not true in terms of the finances of the government, in terms of all sorts of things for the government. Um, the Cold War took a long time. And uh, th- that was okay. And when you say that we're, I- I'm not saying we should be, I never thought we should be in Afghanistan forever. But I always thought if you're going to tell the Taliban, we're not willing to be there forever. You are basically telling the Taliban, wait us out. And that is a problem with, with insurrectionary movements all over the place is that you have to demonstrate a certain amount of will that you are not going to cut and run at the first opportunity. Now, again, you know, I think you're right in being fair when you say whatever the project in Afghanistan was. And I think that for both of us, but for very different reasons, we had we would have had different projects in mind. Um, I don't mind the ancillary nation building that has gone on in Afghanistan. I think it is a good thing, but I don't think it is the point of being there. I think it is a it is a side benefit of being there. The fact that women and girls can go to school and that you know it was a crappy, corrupt government that really had a hard time with democracy, but it was better as a metaphysical moral certitude it was better than the taliban and um um and one of the things i despise about the way biden talks about all of this stuff is this very much sort of cold war era moral equivalent stuff well just they're two sides in a civil war okay yeah okay they're two sides in a civil war that doesn't mean each side is has the same moral status. My general rule is if you throw acid in the faces of little girls, you're worse than somebody who does not. And um, so regardless, I think that, you know, the, the, the problem with debating Afghanistan is there's so much sunk cost fallacy to go around. I think my side suffers from it. I think your side suffers from it. Um, I think uh, this notion of having been there so long does play tricks on the human mind, but there are all sorts of things that nation states do in a timeless and eternal way, or at least as they can. You know, we, um, you know, 
we stuck it out with the Monroe Doctrine for a really long time. You know, that doesn't mean that the laws of entropy now make the Monroe Doctrine less relevant. Some things we've stuck, you know, I wish we were more faithful to the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, but the simple fact that we've done it for a long time doesn't make it any less true that we should continue to do it. Some, some dogmatic questions are settled. And I realize this is different than an issue about fighting an insurgency in Afghanistan, but the same principle applies insofar as that I just think we just fundamentally disagree about how time by itself should play into um, how policymakers think about things. It's certainly fair to talk about like progress on the ground for how the Afghan government sucked. Um, but, uh, in terms of like our commitment to not let Afghanistan become a safe haven for terrorist organizations, um, uh, that seems like it's a permanent commitment, right? I mean, our commitment to protecting South Korea has gone on a hell of a lot longer than our commitment to, to, to Afghanistan. And, you know, I don't see why our commitment should end just because it's gone on for a long time. So I, I know we need to talk about other things, but I, I guess I, I actually just really disagree with you. And though maybe maybe we're just talking past here a little bit, but nations are institutions and they last longer than our lives in many cases, though not all. Um, but I don't think they are timeless and eternal. The United States is a specific number of years old. Every empire uh, before the United States uh, had a, a lifespan. Um, and so so time does apply to nations. But just more than that, Time applies to individuals, and it is not some, it is, when we carry out a project like the war in Afghanistan, it's not just the nation in some abstract sense carrying out that project. It is thousands upon thousands of individuals who are devoting their minutes and their hours and their days to that project. And so for them, even if you, even if you think I'm misunderstanding how time works for nations, time works the way it works. For you and for me, for every for every person who is involved in logistics planning for getting MREs to troops in Afghanistan, for every uh, human being who is over there watching a specific plot of land um, for some purpose, uh, there are there are so many individuals involved in this project, and I think that to me that's that nation states are, are just composed of individuals and they have to respect the individual's time, right? Being a, being a, being a nation state, being a, uh, the, the ruler or policymaker for a polity does not like give you a, uh, the Dr. Strange necklace, right? It's not the, the eye of Agamotto, right? Like suddenly it does the rules of time still apply. They, it still just marches forward inexorably every single day. And if you're spending time on a project, you are spending time out of people's lives and that project has to be specific. It has to be for something. Um, it has to it has to be sustainable. And I just don't see that being the case in Afghanistan. Yeah, I, and I, I I think we just simply agree to disagree on this. I think we've had police since the founding of this country. Uh, it takes up a lot of people's time. It's an intergenerational thing. I don't see an end date. There's no end of history for policing. We will have crime forever. And so we will have police forever. Now, I'm not trying to say that analogy works for Afghanistan. I'm just trying to make the point that time works differently for nation states if you concede that they are not organic life forms and that they don't have an, a set expiration date where they, they you know, the, the telomeres in their cells no longer reproduce and they die. I mean, like, 
just because the Roman Empire had a had a lifespan um, doesn't mean that it was an organic life form with a teleological inexorable death in store for it. And um, I think that certain commitments are commitments. And um, no, again, I don't like getting in the weeds of this argument about time in the context of Afghanistan, because I'm not in favor of staying there forever. It's a different thing. And I'm not saying it's like fighting crime here in the United States. All I'm saying is that I just think, I think you're, you're kind of doing what I don't like about progressives when they talk about the body politic as if the, the nation state is this organic entity that exists. Um, but I've never heard it applied to like foreign policy projects before. So I have, I need time to process. Um, I just don't think nations are not analogizable to, um, biological life. And I think it leads us into bad places and muddy thinking when we do. So I, 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 I should probably clarify just a little bit. I, I don't think that nations themselves are exactly holistic organisms. My point is that nations are made up of individuals and individuals have experienced time and every project that requires the mass deployments of individuals and resources that are extracted from individuals, uh, trillions of dollars, for example, um, is going to take up individual people's time. Yeah, I, look, I mean, and again, if you want to talk about trillions of dollars, that was sort of my point before, is like the time, that's the measurement of, of that's the stand-in that, that's what time is standing in for when you're talking about nation states. It's, it's, it's blood and treasure. And that argument I get, I just, I think that when I listen to Joe Biden say, you know, China and Russia would love for us to stay in Afghanistan forever, um, and that they're, they were laughing at us for, for being involved in Afghanistan. He may be right. I don't think he is, but he may be right. I just think that they're laughing at us a hell of a lot more now because of the, how we handled this and the blow to our prestige, the blow to our, nat I would argue our national honor. And also the, the propaganda victory we gave to a bunch of really awful human beings and organizations that want to kill people. And um, and so the sunk cost fallacy for me becomes a problem in that, in that you have to ask, what are the costs and benefits of getting out now? Not what have we, you know, what have we thrown at this in the past, but you know, you know, the Biden administration says it wants to pivot to more classic geopolitical and geostrategic rivalries. And it's like, well, okay, if that's the case, I can make a case for keeping Bagram air base, having an air base in the middle of that neighborhood as a matter of cold realpolitik, you know, let the Taliban, you know, murder people and all that. But what, what is the argument is in terms of geostrategic, geostrategic value of giving up a forward deployed military base, um, in between China, Iran, Russia, and all those places. And, and so I agree with you, people move, move the goalposts, but I think there's goalposts moving all over the place on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what China and Russia think at all, in part because China and Russia are, are they're not individuals. They can't have specific thoughts. Um, uh, and also because who in the world knows what the people in the Chinese and Russian government are thinking at any given moment. But just in, you know, to your point about loss of uh, national 
stature, right? The the loss of face from this. I I just I, I think first of all that that actually commits the, the error in some ways that you're accusing me of, uh, you know, d- d- politely here, but like <laughs> the nations like it. It's, it says, well, look, a, a nation has honor, a nation has, you know, sort of all of these kind of psychological uh, characteristics that we attribute to to individual humans, right? And like, that sort of thing works in Pixar when they're like, let's take that and and, and make and give human attributes to a, a bunch of sea turtles or something. But like, I'm not sure it totally works for nations. But even to the extent that it does, even to the extent that it does, I, I just, this, I think, is a big divide between... Um, between conservatives who are more hawkish and libertarians who are more dovish, which is just that conservatives who are more hawkish are really focused on that sort of this, this vague sense of like national honor and national character when it comes to foreign policy. And I think libertarians would argue that, that serving that, that an honor culture, um, is, is either beside the point, um, is just a mistake, is impossible because you can't really know what it's going to be anyway. Uh, but even more than that, it just gets in the way of, of doing the thing that, you, that governments should be doing, which is serving the direct needs of the people, at, of, of their people at home. And sort of feeling like somehow or another, the United States is responsible for uh, every place in the, in the world where there is trouble, where there are bad things happening. And there are many places in the world where there are bad things happening and where the United States as a rich country with a big military could exert, could certainly insert itself in a big way. And when, and so I, I'm going to say exert influence, but I don't necessarily mean fix the problems, but could certainly deploy influence across the world. That doesn't mean that it should, and that doesn't mean that it's a good use of resources. Um, and I think, I, I, I just think that the project of politics is to serve is to serve the the citizens of a country first and foremost, rather than to I don't know uh, to to keep like to make sure that your that your country continues to be likable, continues to have like some sort of you know that, that other that like there's that I, like I national honor just seems like such a a, a a, a not particularly practical and useful concept to be sort of uh, devoting such a huge amount of resources to. Oh, okay. Yeah, again, we're going to just have to disagree on a lot of this. Uh, countries may not have, may not be organic life forms, but they do have reputations. They do have a certain amount of, you know, essentially. Sure. And th- as in the way that all capital with their allies. Do. And when you, if you just follow what the Brits are saying about the United States today, the idea that we don't have less political capital with among our chief allies because of the way we behaved, I just think is not true. And um, I'm not talking about some ethereal notion of honor and manliness and all of that kind of stuff. I'm very anti-nationalism. Um, I, am, uh, I am simply saying that our credibility around the world matters a great deal. And conducting our, and so, and when you say there are lots of places around the world where there are bad things happening where we could exert our influence, I agree entirely. And I, I always find it fascinating how the people who are against a specific project um, make that point without acknowledging that there are all sorts of things all around the world that that I, a defender of one project, do not want to do anything about in other parts of the world. I mean, the the, the people who talk about how, you know, uh, you know, the that if you like Afghanistan 
or if you wanted to stay in Afghanistan, that means you want to be the world's policeman. Well, then show me the evidence where else I want to be the world's policeman. You know, like it does not, there's no transitive value. No one's, where's the evidence that I want to intervene in Yemen, you know, or in Libya or in a lot of these places or in much of sub-Saharan Africa. I don't, the, the, the merits of the Afghan case are the merits of the Afghan case, regardless of whether or not there are merits to other cases around the world. And I, I think it's a bit of a stolen base, but I'll let you have the last word on this and then we will move on to other depressing topics. It's obviously the case that Afghanistan is its own specific example, and we could debate the specific merits, but I do think there is a kind of, um, it's not quite a transitive property, uh, but it is, it is the case that when institutional leadership policymakers um, become comfortable doing something in one place, they become, it's easier for them to start doing it elsewhere. And I think it's actually uh, just, I think it's a mistake to look at the last 20 or 40 or 75 years of American history and say that the United States has not, uh, has generally refrained from intervention um, in, in foreign affairs. Uh, there are just there. We've been in so many conflicts, large and small, and had so many little tiny strikes and uh, l- little strike forces being sent to do this and that here. You know, um, we've not necessarily tried to play the world's policeman in a in a completely holistic sense, but we have not exactly been uh, restrained in our ambitions uh, globally. That's fair. I mean, I, I think it's. I think it's fair. I'm not sure how responsive it is to my position, but I I think you're. It's a perfectly and Afghanistan is in some sense an extension. Afghanistan is in some sense just an extension of of all of the stuff that came before it. And so, you know, I I would like to see, I would like to see more restraint rather than um, more sort of rather than sticking with with projects that again, what was the project? Where was it going? Um, and, and you might have an answer and your answer because you're a clearer thinker and also, uh, because you have time to sort of work this stuff out, um, might be, it might be a better one, but if you asked, you asked the people running the show, you know, you'd get different answers. And if you accuse them of doing one thing that wasn't working, they'd say, well, we're not doing that. Um, oh, and, a lot it of just, and so it just I agree, ends I up, it ends up being like, well, so again, what are we doing? And I think the answer is we don't know. And it, whatever it was, it wasn't working very well. And when that's the case, uh, you have to make a decision at some point. Um, but again, right, that's, that's not enough. to say, you know, that's just not to say that, that what has happened there over the last month has been easy to watch or, or anything other than tragic. Yeah. Nor does it mean that this story of us in Afghanistan is over because there is a non-trivial chance that we got to do this whole thing all over again because the... Taliban is going to behave like the Taliban and the Taliban is essentially, um, you know, or this way, Al Qaeda is basically the, you know, the militant wing of the Taliban. And, um, so time will tell. All right, let's move on to, I don't know, more depressing, but not exactly uplifting things. Uh, one of your other big beats is, um, um, how we have a tendency in this country to spend money like a pimp with a week to live and um uh that long man that seems <laughs> um, well you gotta save something for day six 
That's true. That's true. Um, uh, damn the law of entropy when it applies to pimps and their credit cards. Uh, so anyway, uh, um, all of our conversation, metaphysical conversation about the nature of time, notwithstanding Herb Stein, uh, coined Stein's law, which is that anything that cannot go on forever, uh, must eventually stop. And, um, we are spending money now at a clip that really would, would people would say you were high if you had said even 10 years ago that we would be having it where the conservative spending plan after having already spent what, $5 trillion or something like that would be a $1 trillion or $1.5 trillion stimulus uh, infrastructure bill compared to the more ambitious $3.5 trillion bill. Uh, where the hell is all this going? Should I buy gold? Well, uh, gold <laughs> or Bitcoin or whatever your preferred stock of um, you know, uh, non-government currency is. Uh, no, I, I don't know. I, that's not a financial recommendation <laughs> in any way. Um, hey, are you I, a Bitcoin guy? So are you my, a bit Bitcoin enthusiast? I want your answer to the question, but I'm just I want to I don't want to lose this. Uh, so I I am I am um, interested in Bitcoin. I do not own any Bitcoin. I passed up some opportunities very early on when I could have just like used a home computer to get it. Like I had a bunch of friends who were mining, you know, their IT guys, and they all you know have twenty thirty computers just laying around their house, and they were like, "Oh, Bitcoin! It's this new thing, and maybe we should just sort of put together." Right? None of them became billionaires or anything like that. Most of them sold relatively early on, um, and so I do vaguely regret not having just like taken the afternoon one day to to mine a Bitcoin, you know, part of one, or like to start that process and and learn a little bit more about it. Um, I would say that I am very very bullish on um on the blockchain and on the underlying idea of uh of of a system that creates trust between two parties without an individual third party intermediary i think that technology is going to do incredible and revolutionary things over the rest of our lives um I am somewhat skeptical about Bitcoin as currency specifically, not because I think it's a bad idea or that it can't work um, on its own terms, but because the issue with Bitcoin, as in a different way with gold, but specifically with Bitcoin, is that for Bitcoin to be useful as money, at some point it needs to in interact with the, with the ordinary economy. And that means that there's all of these kind of choke points where uh, regulators, um, whether they are whether or not you like what they're doing or whether you agree with them or not, um, and in many cases, I virtually all I would say, hey, that these are it's a bad idea to regulate this stuff to try and put limitation. Like, but if it's going to have to enter into the sort of government the fiat currency regime right it's if it's going to have to interact with the dollar then that's going to create a bunch of choke points where regulators can get to it and also where banks and other organizations that might have some interest in making bitcoin less useful in some cases um are going to have opportunities to say ah we're not going to be participating in that system and what that means is that bitcoin is until Bitcoin can figure out a, a, a way to practically uh, and easily circumvent those regulatory choke points, 
um, I think that it runs the risk of being regulated into uh, either uselessness um, or just having all of its kind of really useful functions, which is to say that it's a currency that exists outside of government control. Well, at, at some point, you enter into the government control zone and the government starts to have opportunities to say, hey, you can do this, but you can't do that. You've got to do it this way. You've got to do it that way. Um, and that's and again, you can imagine how like some some ways that Bitcoin could kind of route around uh, let's call it the government control zone, but it's going to be very hard for it to get there without mass mainstream adoption first. But you can't get mass mainstream adoption for it unless you can make it work easily with the government currency regime that we already have. So, I mean, I, this is why I asked you because I've been wanting to get an answer. I, am, I should also be clear. My colleagues at Reason are much more uh, uh, bullish on it. And I think they're, and in many cases, they're like, I, like they're kind of, I, you know, you should listen to them for for other cases. Um, and like, I don't want to be like Bitcoin is bad. Bitcoin is actually wonderful. I just think there are practical and political issues that like are going to pop up as it becomes, uh, more, you know, a, a greater part of our sort of fiscal and economic world. Yeah, no, that, that's all fair. And 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 if you and, and if you have theories about why libertarianism is so prone to gold buggery. Um, uh, I love to hear them because I think it's a fascinating thing. But my, the reason I just asked you because I assumed reason the reason guys, um, that there was a hotbed of of Bitcoin fandom there. But the reason I brought it up is was a couple of weeks ago Congress or a month ago Congress was considering some regular some taxing thing about about Bitcoin, and I was hearing all these people all these Bitcoin advocates saying, well, this is going to destroy cryptocurrency in America and all that kind of stuff. And I could not get an answer to this very, very basic question, which is I keep hearing advocates of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular, say that it's um, that it's singular appeal is that it is outside the government framework and that you can you can have financial resources sort of like gold, right? which can countenance the fall of a government or government intrusion and all that kind of stuff. That is, it's the libertarian dream currency kind of thing. And yet one bill in Congress can destroy cryptocurrency. Well, doesn't that like contradict the whole argument about the benefits of cryptocurrency? And I haven't gotten a good argument, explanation of that. It seems like you agree a little bit with that kind of skepticism that like, at least for now, it can't, it can't be the thing that they want it to be without the government being okay with it for a while longer. What I would say is that let's let's actually not talk about cryptocurrency specifically for just a moment. Let's just talk about currency. And if you've read Milton Friedman's Money Mischief, which is just a delightful, delightful book, um, I, I would say that my big takeaway from that book is that money is mysterious. No one really fully understands how it works. And, and money is a way, it's a way of storing value and medium of exchange and all this, right? Like we can all sort of repeat the catechism here, but like money can be digital bits and it can be pieces of paper that represent nothing. And it can be gold that people will fight wars for. And it can be a big rock in the ocean that never moves and nobody's ever touched. It can be cans of fish in prisons, uh, right? Or cigarettes. It is. Tell me about it. 
right? Like it's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. This is, uh, that's what you buy on day six is, um, and, and so anybody who sort of thinks they fully understand the nature of how money works, I think there are people who probably understand it better than me. Um, and who, who have more, who have, uh, more intricate and better developed theories than I do. But I think at some point it just sort of becomes this thing that we don't fully grasp all of the properties of it. And so you apply that thinking to the world of crypto versus the world of, uh, of, of U.S. backed, right, of dollars, right, of, of government currency, um, then you can see how crypto could become incredibly useful even very quickly. And you could see how in the uh, event of a a crash of the dollar of a of a financial system you know just a, a apocalypse where the dollar ceases to be useful suddenly crypto is the thing that is there that is useful and that everybody can rely on and people can just sort of find a way to switch but in more normal times like we are currently living in which is not to say that they are very normal but they are somewhat more normal um, where the where the government currency system is basically functional, basically reliable, uh, at least for today, maybe not by the time this podcast comes out, um, <laughs> right? But like at least for the moment, and uh, and where it is the mainstream way of paying for things that most people uh, this is how most people keep their money. It is how most people spend their money. Um, Crypto is going to face the, a challenge of interacting with that system seamlessly while also escaping, like pre- preserving its value as a system beyond government control. Because to interact with, with a system of government controlled currency is to involve yourself in that system that government inherently controls. And so, um, again, I think, I think the blockchain that it, uh, that crypto is based on is just incredibly promising. Um, and you can imagine, I mean, there's already talk about social networks, Twitter-like projects that have no overseer at all. There's no sort of central choke point. There's no place where you can go and you can say, hey, take this down. There just isn't an authority to report to or complain to. It's just a system that works entirely on its own as long as all of the nodes are sort of keep it up. Um, and so things like that, uh, just to provide one example, are are super promising and super interesting. You can imagine all of these information sharing systems that are super reliable and don't rely on a third party intermediary popping up. And that's that's going to change our lives and that's going to change the world. And that's where I am by far the most bullish on the sort of crypto project um, in the very short term, uh, you know, maybe uh, look. Crypto. Lots of people have made a lot of money with crypto. Um, I have not, so maybe don't listen to me. Um, on the other hand, I, I just think that there are practical, poli- like a it's a combination of practical and political issues um, that that have not been fully resolved that are going to come to the fore over the next couple of years as we see Congress start to do things like try to rec- regulate cryptocurrency in an infrastructure bill, which is something that has actually happened this summer. Very interesting. I mean, I could go on, but I, I, I and ask more questions. But I think we should get back. I've wanted to get a good crypto guy or gal person entity, um, sentient life form on this on the podcast for a while to just do a sort of explainer for me. Um, so if you have any suggestions, let me know. Um, 
it can't be, but it has to be somebody who can acknowledge the downsides. I just, I've, I've, having spent now 30 years going to events where people are trying to explain to me that if you don't buy gold right now, um, you're going to be, you know, uh, drinking puddle water. And the, the um, downside of, uh, of Bitcoin is that it's worth a lot and I don't have any. Um, eh, well, like also the, the, another downside of, of Bitcoin is if we get hit with an EMP attack, um, <laughs> it's like our, our money has been set fire to, um, which is sort of, I so, mean, so that's, that's true, but it's also true in not exactly the same way, but of the, uh, of tr- traditional currency banks are so electronic at this point. And, you know, I mean, when you think I about think the, most, the fed, some buying, like 95% of all money yeah. is not paper anymore. Right. Yeah. Something when you like think that. about what the fed is doing and how it interacts with big banks, it's all just computer driven. And so, you know, there, there's always some electronic, uh, risk there. And I don't think there's any more. I should maybe didn't say that. I don't think it's obviously substantially more with crypto than it is with the current financial system. Um, I agree. I just my my point, which I think you agree with, is that Bitcoin, to a certain because of this mystery of money thing, Bitcoin. Lots of people on the gold side will say, "Well, you know, fiat currency is just a social construct that is based upon nothing." Yada yada yada. And my view is that so is gold. The value of gold. I mean, unless you're into very sophisticated electronic wiring stuff, the value of gold is based upon is 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 solely based upon the value that society's put on it. And if if the zombie apocalypse happened tomorrow, you wouldn't grab all your gold ingots. You'd grab all sorts of other things that have much more utility for you. Which is not to say that gold isn't a good investment or that Bitcoin isn't a good investment. It's just that people want to use this social construction argument to denigrate other people's ideas of the ideal currency, but never their own. And it turns out that most currencies have to have some level of social buy-in to work as currencies in the first place. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to give people investment advice, and um, and I would just slightly disagree. I think there are people who, in the zombie apocalypse, absolutely would grab their gold. Um, and while, you know, I would not describe myself as a hardcore gold bug, um, uh, and like I said, I think money is mysterious and complex and no one fully understands it, um, you can make an argument that gold has right that sort of gold has persisted beyond uh government currencies it's the value of it like is 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 something beyond um right like if the united states ceased to exist um it, the dollar wouldn't be worth anything at all uh but gold probably still would be probably sure. i mean you can imagine yeah, a scenario no, I, in which I gold is worth fair, much right. less and so it is well, you can well you can say, oh, sure, it's still a social construction. It's still just a big rock in the lake that's we're going to say this one family owns this or the other family owns this, and that's all it's going to be. Maybe there is just in a kind of practical like look at history, people have wanted gold, and it has become it has been valuable. And so, if you want to make a bet based on history on what will con- what will hold its value, gold is not the stupidest thing you could you know is not the oh, I don't it's not the stupidest that. thing you could bet on. I don't dispute that. I would like to have a lot of gold. And the fact, and part of the reason why gold is um, uh, so valuable is I don't think people appreciate its scarcity. My uh, my understanding is you could take every bit of known gold in the world, everybody's wedding rings, all the stuff from the King Tut exhibit at the museum, and it would add up to about two uh, Olympic-sized swimming pools. 
because there's that little gold in the world, which is kind of a fascinating way to think about it. And it's not true of diamonds. Diamonds are artificially scarce. Gold is actually legitimately scarce. And when we can finally get asteroid mining, all of this system will come crashing to an end. And that's why I'm much more bullish about asteroid mining than I am about new social networks that cannot be moderated because the one thing this country desperately needs is more people being able to speak freely um, and vent their 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 wonderful opinions. Um, that's that's it's, it's the dearth of free speech that is destroying this country right now. It's just not something I, I completely buy into. And I know this makes a lot of people mad, but um, um, but that's a topic for another day. All right. So just because there are people out there who have sort of an OCD problem of when I bring up a question and then don't let the guest actually get to it because we went off on a tangent. Uh, what is your state of pessimism about the, the, the fiscal situation of the United States of America and where, uh, and the sort of, I, I have to believe you think it's a bipartisan problem of, yeah. of, of spending um, so, and where we are. So my feeling about the current spending situation is that it's crazy. It's that it's crazy, even if it doesn't eventually cause, uh, you know, a, a, a deep fiscal collapse or something like that, um, that it's just not in any way, it's not justifiable. Um, but I, you asked about the, you, you said, I, I probably think of this as a bipartisan issue. And there's obviously, you know, you go back to, uh, go back to 2020 when Trump was president. Um, and Republicans and Democrats and a Republican president just got together to spend trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars um, starting in March, April of 2020. And it was, I believe, it was, uh, off the top of my head, I believe it was about $4 trillion in 2020. And then Joe Biden becomes president and uh, Democrats take Congress. And there's about another $2 trillion that passes at the beginning of this year. And we're now looking at another $4 trillion or so um, in new spending. So that's a one point something trillion dollar infrastructure bill with 550 billion in new spending and then a 3.5 trillion dollar reconciliation bill uh which is going to be just partisan um and it's just it's a democratic social spending bill and democratic priority bill right there's uh there's money for sort of a a, a there's a child tax credit system that some people have likened somewhat to to welfare there's expansions of healthcare there's a bunch of money for uh for climate spending all of this stuff um and i am i am interested in the way that democrats have just really decided i think even more than republicans um that there's absolutely no limitation on how much federal spending can be supported at any given moment. They just don't feel bound in by anything. And it's, some of them do, right? And Democrats, a little bit of a nebulous, right? There's, there's a multiplicity of opinions within Democrats. But the, the, the center of the party um, and sort of the, uh, the, the part that has power and is, is rising has just decided that there's no real limitations on federal spending um, that matter. And I think what they have done is kind of take is take uh, a very simplistic and you know sort of a vulgarized version of modern monetary theory MMT, which you know is more complicated. And I don't want to say that again. I'm not saying that like Democratic senators have all gone full MMT. That's not what I'm saying. But they've all sort of taken the loose and light spirit of MMT, which like the simplest version of like the simplest message that you could take from MMT, the Twitter length version is you can spend money and don't worry about the deficit. 
And like, and so that's what they're doing. And I think one of the reasons that they are doing it, though, and I'm actually curious what you think about this, is because they are reacting to Republican, to decades of Republican supply-siderism. And so what Republicans have argued for decades is that, um, you know, that, okay, so again, I should say what some Republicans in some circumstances (laughs) have argued for decades, and there are certainly outliers and it's more complex than, than this, is that you can you can pass tax cuts without spending cuts and that's fine and of course taxes and spending are you know there's you can make arguments that there's uh, that they're not morally equal right but like from a on on paper just as as a matter of budget math um the deficit goes up if you reduce taxes by a trillion dollars and it also goes up if you increase spending by a trillion dollars like it the, the the effect on the budget is the same and so, I, just, uh, one caveat for my my supply sider friends out there: if you reduce tax revenues by a trillion dollars, sure, I, sure, I should yeah, say that, not, that is correct. Not, right. I, uh, uh, yes, tax revenues, right? So if, if revenues are reduced by a trillion dollars versus if expenditures go up by a trillion dollars, the effect on the budget is the same. Um, and again, I understand like there's you know moral distinctions between letting people keep their own money and spending more money, um, and. I, I even think they they are fair to some extent, but what Republicans basically did was spend the last twenty or thirty, forty years arguing. Well, look, that means that makes our priorities free, and it means that yours always cost us something. And again, there were smarter and dumber versions of this. Um, uh, and but there, but like within the Republican Party, the simple spirit of supply-siderism often just translated into, well, well, tax cuts don't matter because, because they pay for themselves um, and because, uh, because you know, th- therefore there's actually no effect on the, on the budget. And that's just not true, right? And I've heard this from like, from even like quite smart, educated, you know, sort of like people who are involved in like their county Republican Party t- types, like, Many times over the years, they'll like at a dinner, they'll like, oh, you you write about politics. What do you think about tax cuts? You know, I actually heard one guy say at one point that the way to uh, uh, that we needed to cut government down to size by passing taxes, which would increase revenue. And like. It didn't make any sense because what he was saying was that it, we need to cut. We need to really shrink the governments by cutting taxes and that in the process what we will end up doing is actually increasing revenues, which, if you think about it, leaves you with a larger government. And so, in any case, we can, if you want to argue about supply-siderism or, or whatever here, we, we can. But I think that a lot of what is going on is that MMT has risen up as the sort of the, the Democratic Party's fiscal spirit guide, um, in part because they kept feeling like, wow, the Republicans just get to do the supply side stuff. And it's making us so mad. And they all they they get to they get they have this argument that they get to make that at least the insiders in their party believe to some extent or accept as part of the catechism. We just sort of nod and assent to this. Um that that all, all of our priorities are free and all of yours cost. And you know, what we're gonna say now is all of our priorities are free too. And there's no actual limitation on what we can do here. Um, and which means we now have, in effect, two parties, both of whom believe that government spending, uh, that you know, that, that debt and deficits are just not that big a deal, and that there is effectively 
no real limitation on pursuing their priorities and that we could, you know, um, I mean, we, we are very close. I am only a little exaggerating, okay, maybe a lot exaggerating, but like an exaggerated view of this sort of has Republicans believing that we don't need any taxes and Democrats believing that we can just end up, that, that we can spend as much as we want. And like, that's the kind of consensus we have arrived, or not the consensus, but that is the balance we have arrived at in Congress. Yeah, so um, I basically agree with you entirely. <laughs> um, I think that, the point about Democrats taking permission from Republican arguments, I think is just objectively true. If you go back and you listen to AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's original interviews where she was proposing the Green New Deal, New, Green New Deal um, she basically says that. I remember, you know, Steve Inskeep from NPR asking her, you know, well, how are you going to pay for this stuff? And her immediate response, and I think it was a sincere response, was, no one ever asks Republicans how they're going to pay for X, Y, and Z, you know, and for their tax cuts. all that. Right, but for specifically cuts, for their tax cuts, right? Yeah. And this for tax is the cuts, thing but that... also like defense spending and there are all sorts of other things. I mean, like, yeah, but yeah, yeah, the tax cuts for sure. And I think you're right. And I think that there is a, there's a certain sort of alchemy that comes with, and, th and this is one of my major complaints, one of my major indictments of the Republican Party and a big chunk of the conservative movement over the last 30 years is that you envy the free reign that the other side has. And so you adopt their arguments, you know? And so, yeah. well, there's, uh, I mean, th this is politics is a kind of warfare, right? And in warfare, if you develop like a super weapon that can't be defeated, then the other side spends all of their time trying to develop a response to that, which is in some ways balance, you know, rebalances the tactical field. And so this, like this simplified version of, you know, this MMT spirit that I'm talking about. And again, I keep, I, I know I keep like, uh, sort of saying, oh, it's not real MMT because the the hardcore MMTers will always like just jump on you if you say, oh, they're doing MMT. I'm not saying that exactly. I'm saying they're taking a simplified lesson from it. But what? But they've done that in a way that is just designed to rebalance the tactical field. Yeah, I, I think. Look, I think that's exactly right. I think that there is a tendency in politics. You know, look, I'm a big believer. Ideas have consequences. Ideas shape things. Blah 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 blah. I agree with that entirely. I, I also think, though, that that gets exaggerated because often what happens is politicians and activists go rummaging through the shelves to find ideas they already agree with to give themselves permission to do something. And there are very few, you know, politicians, particularly these days, as they become unconstrained by traditional commitments to being part of an institution and instead are just individual platform performers. Um, where is the attraction in, in finding an idea that happens to be more correct, that happens to be more accurate and more empirical, uh, that doesn't let you do what you want to do? And so there's a certain, you know, there's a certain monkey's paw aspect to this is I want the thing that grants me my wishes. And um, for Republicans and for conservatives, a lot of people have lost their damn minds. I mean, this is a constant theme on here about, you know, Saul Alinsky envy that the left got to make these sort of ends justify the means about everything arguments and, and become devoted to power. And um, we should be able to do that too. And that's why you see a lot of the garbage that's coming out. I mean, like J.D. Vance tweeted yesterday that, you know, the one thing about Democrats is that they love and care about power and Republicans are terrified of it. And, you know, on, in the one sense, I kind of liked the old Republican and libertarian point of view that said, being afraid of power is a good thing, <laughs> you know, um, 
but now it's this idea that since they love it and they get to use it, we got to, you know, we got to fight fire with fire. And I generally don't like multi-party democracy. I think it's got all sorts of flaws, but I'm coming around on it because I think psycho psychologically in an era where we have the institutional incentive structure that we do, the capacity in a, in a two-party system for mirroring the worst ideas of the other side is really, really strong in an age of polarization. And um, it leaves you with no, you know, it's like if you can't beat them, join them, becomes the uh, organizational principle for everybody. And, and, and this is why, like, I see nationalism and socialism as mirrors of each other in a lot of ways in terms of the actual things you want to do just have to do with the, the actual things that distinguish between them have more to do about which constituencies you want to reward and less to do with any sort of serious ideological programmatic differences. Want, uh, socialists have industrial policy. They don't want to pick winners and losers. And the nationalists have industrial policy and want to pick winners and losers. And they may want to pick different winners, but the principle of not picking winners and losers seems to be you know, dying on the vine. And I find that very, very depressing. And if the Republican Party is, you know, this, is, and this gets to my obsession with why I, you know, people get really mad at me for focusing on the failures of the Republican Party these days and of the right. And I cannot get through to, through to some of them that this is not because I've become liberal. It's because if, we, if the GOP, if we no longer have a conservative party in this country, if we just have two accelerator pedals and no brake pedal on government, that is, that is a recipe for a terrible disaster. And, you know, if, if, you, if the Republicans don't care about the constitutional norms, if they don't care about fidelity to the founding principles, if they don't care about, you know, neutral rules and, and free trade and free markets and limited government, it's not like the Democrats are going to pick up those ideas anytime soon, at least. And that is going to leave those ideas out of currency in the country. And that is, if you actually believe those things are important, they're more important than like owning the libs or winning a specific policy debate. That's about like making sure if you're, if you're like me, you actually think that that's how, that's the thing that guarantees the survival of the country, or at least the country I want to live in. And you should be fighting for them, even if it's politically inexpedient. Anyway, enough of my rant. Yeah, I, um, I think a, some part of this comes back to the Republican Party essentially abandoning a domestic economic policy agenda beyond uh, reducing tax rates. And that's the thing that the modern Republican, like there's, there's a sense in which some of the critics of the Republican Party on the, on the center left really are kind of right about this. And maybe that's changing a little bit, you can see, I think maybe not, I think in some ways it's not changing in ways that are necessarily good, but you can see in this sort of nationalist right world, um, folks are, there are people who are trying to develop a more robust uh, economic policy agenda for the Republican Party. Um, it is for the most part one I disagree with, but at least it's, uh, it is an agenda that you can argue with, but the child tax the credits, Republican all that stuff. Party. Yeah, to child tax credits, you know, um, uh, uh, subsidies, uh, base, effectively subsidies, wage subsidies for workers, you know, sort of uh, stuff that's um, I, the the person who is, you know, uh, who I have tangled with, um, who I think has some good ideas and some ideas I quite strongly disagree with is Oren Cass, um, who has been doing a bunch of this stuff, but sort of that world of um, of policy. Uh, but But the Republican Party sort of as a, as an institution has not 
gone very far down the road of, a, of adopting that. And there was a quote that was given to the Daily Beast, I, want, I don't know, two or three years ago that has just stuck with me. And it was from some anonymous Republican source, you know, in Congress or in the Trump administration or something like that, um, where somebody just sort of glibly said to the reporter, uh, well, you know, look, the Democrats are going to do health care because that's their thing. We're going to do taxes because that's ours. And so you have the, ta- the, the low tax party and the high health care spending party. And those are the two things that get done. And that's how we find ourselves in the situation we're in, where one party cares about low taxes and occasionally doing uh, giant emergency, emergency spending bills. Um, and the other party cares about massively expanding uh, social spending, which is what the rest of the uh, the bulk of the rest of the Biden agenda that is has not passed yet, but is currently on track and moving towards passage, perhaps um, probably by the end of the year. Uh, and and I just think that that's that is a very bad political. Maybe I should say that is a completely understandable political equilibrium to be at, uh, because each party is sort of fighting on their own turf. And has an agenda that allows it to score wins, um, you know, with its with its base and and in policy. But it's a very bad place to be fiscally and economically. Um, and there's not a real obvious check on bad on bad economics and and bad fiscal policy for either party right now. Yeah. No, I, again, I agree. I think that the um... You know, I mean, just to, to, to defend the spirit of supply side for just two seconds, I think we can both agree that some taxes are less conducive to economic growth than other taxes. Oh, sure. And, and look, and, and the supply side effect is uh, the the like at base is a is describing a real thing, which is that there are there are some I mean, you can uh, reduce tax rates. And sometimes, oh, it looks like on paper, if you just sort of assume that it's that it's a one-to-one transfer, you're going to reduce tax revenues by a trillion dollars. But in fact, some economic growth happens because you have reduced that tax rate. But it's very rarely enough to pay for, very rarely if ever, enough to actually fully offset the, the, the reduced tax revenues. Um, and essentially never enough to actually increase tax revenues, which is occasionally an argument that you actually hear Republicans make, even within the last couple of years, that cutting taxes is a way to re- to increase tax revenues. Excuse me, cutting tax rates. I don't remember who said it, but there's that line, you know, that there's nothing wrong with supply-side economics that dividing by 10 wouldn't fix, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not that it's not true. It's just that it's wildly exaggerated. And, um, and just so we have some equal time here, I just want to read you something in case you missed it this morning on, on the Twitters. Um, which I, I actually kind of thought was legitimately funny. Um, uh, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, and a few others came out with this say, statement calling on Biden to replace uh, uh, the chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, saying, we urge President Biden to reimagine a Federal Reserve focused on eliminating climate risk and advancing racial and economic justice. And I love this in a way because it's like, it's a perfect illustration. First of all, it's a perfect illustration of this thing I used to joke about in college with my friends about how you could take virtually any three or four nouns and end 
the sentence with and the environment and it would sound like it's the name of a course or a conference that was going on like you know uh dogs cats lawn furniture and the environment you know it was like uh, now, like, now i want to take that course where can i sign <laughs> exactly up? is and that the, online um it probably is um and this idea that every institution needs to be about climate change and racial justice it's like this you know perfect example of how there can be no islands of separateness from progressive ideology um but also like the idea that this would be a good idea like markets would respond well to changing the mandate of the federal reserve to fighting economic injustice and and racial injustice and climate change um uh it just it, it's so juvenile that i kind of i kind of admire it in a certain way um, I mean, I want a Federal Reserve focused on high-quality craft cocktails for all. Yes. These are the priorities, for, right? For instance. Um, but actually, but here's the thing. A Federal Reserve that focused on its core mission would more likely lead to more people having high quality, the opportunity for high-quality craft cocktails than if it had, in fact, dedicated itself to that policy. Yeah, so I mean, it, that tweet was interesting just in that it um, drove a little bit of a wedge between, uh, you know, the uh, the sort of more activist progressive base and some of the kind of, let's call them center left um, econ types, right? Uh, you know, there's uh, who who have actually been pretty happy with uh, Jerome Powell because he has focused on um, running a hot economy that is more um, that is rather than, uh, you know, that is more focused on job creation and full employment than on inflation. Um, though, you know, we'll see how long uh, that lasts and how long that is sustainable with inflation going up at least somewhat here in the past couple of months under under Biden. Um, uh, and, you know, how that ends up interacting with uh, with Biden's spending plans as, as well. Um, I think, you know, just to go back a little bit to the... Uh, the MMT supply side thing here. Um, it is the 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 other thing I wanted to say was just that these things don't just sort of share tactics. They actually have explicit roots in each other. And so everybody I assume that is listening here has heard the name Art Laffer. Art Laffer is uh, the godfather of sort of American right of center supply siderism, right? Um, and it's arguably its chief proponents. Uh, and uh, if you, the, the, his sort of, um, his counterpart for MMT is a guy named Walt Mosler, a hedge fund guy uh, who started developing MMT ideas in the 1990s or what would become modern MMT anyway. Um, and there was a report a couple of years ago in the New Yorker about Mosler where it was talking about how he was developing his theories of money and how money works and how the government spends money differently than, uh, you know, than households or businesses. And Mosler ended up in contact with Donald Rumsfeld, <laughs> who put him in contact with Art Laffer. And, and Mosler and Laffer ended up, I'm just going to read you a quote so I don't overstate this, Art Laffer helped Mosler workshop his ideas. Mosler found uh, Rumsfeld's uh, help most helpful. Um, and after that, Mosler would become one of modern MMT's founding thinkers. And so there is, it's not just that these things are kind of mirror images of each other. It's that they actually have roots um, in some of the 
that are that are explicitly and practically connected in ways that are kind of telling and interesting. All right, we're running long. I've, I've abused this privilege, but there has been some. I, we telegraphed at the beginning that we were going to talk about cocktails. I think we might just have to put off Marvel movies for another time. Oh no! Um, and I and I got to ask you very. I mean, I have quickly, I have other podcasts for that, but fair enough. I I, I very quickly. Uh, why should I give a rat's ass about Kanye West? I mean, I, I totally ignorant. Uh, so like of his, I guess I could maybe identify a couple songs. Um, but like you were saying how you're sort of fixated on him right now. And so is our own Declan, Declan Garvey. At, at, and so I feel like I should make the case of why I should devote what little bandwidth I have left to following Kanye West. Uh, two reasons. One, he's just musically fascinating. And the other is that he is, he is a, a pop figure of great cultural relevance and fascination. And I will start with that because that's actually where, if you're going to be interested in him, uh, that's, I think, your entry point, is that he is someone who has, has made music and music making and pop stardom relevance to political, cultural discussions, again, in a way that I think is much more rare now than it used to be. So if you go back to the 1980s and 1990s, there were, like, pop music was actually a, a big political concern because it was very violent and very vulgar, and there's all this sort of you know, just awful stuff that was happening in it um, and all that, and it was sort of a, a thing that people, that, like, politicians cared about. There were literally hearings about rap and heavy metal and that sort of thing on, on, on Capitol Hill. Um, and for the most part, like, it's not that the music has changed all that much. It's just that politics has moved on to different fronts in the culture war. But Kanye West has, over the past couple of years, suddenly made music that felt kind of dangerous again. And the way that he has made it feel dangerous is by bringing, bringing politics into it in some ways, um, by at first sort of flirting for uh, a while with being a Trump supporter um, and exactly how strong his Trump support was at any given point. Uh, I'll leave to others to specify, but certainly like he appeared with the guy, he was sort of interested. And this, this became like, like a, a point Candace of- Candace Owens for like three yeah. minutes, right? This became a big point of controversy. Uh, amongst like the music criticism world, uh, which is, you know, leans quite left and amongst Kanye's fans to some extent. Right. And he is, he has figured out a way to make, to make music feel edgy in some way that like, I, I almost feel like I haven't seen since like the early days of, you know, Dr. Dre and, uh, you know, some, uh, some of that stuff, um, in the, in the early nineties, uh, just by injecting it with a, an unexpected, um, kind of politics. And then after that, he has dropped a lot of his kind of uh, Trump support and his right of center political leanings, or at least dropped emphasizing them, I should say, um, and has come around to be uh, to being um, much more outspoken about his faith. Again, not something that's entirely surprising um, and something that's certainly in keeping a little bit with him, but something that has now kind of come out and dominated his music. And the, the album that came out this weekend is very gospel-inflected, which is not surprising because the previous album was literally a gospel album. Right. Was literally a gospel album that won like a, one of the big music awards for best gospel record. Um, but he was like a, arranging church choirs and stuff. And so he's just, he's a fascinating 
pop culture figure, I think, for people who are interested in the ways that uh, pop culture and politics and sort of uh, our larger sort of sociological character in America interact. Um, And also, if you if you like if you have the capacity to like like anything in the zone of modern hip hop, Kanye's music is just far and away, um, you know, one of the the best examples. He's just a musically fascinating. Um, and I think they're, you know, for a certain type of person, they're going to say, Oh, look, this just sounds like every other kind of lame, you know, three and a half minute trap song that's on the radio. It's just recycling stuff. What's the difference between this? And I don't know, pop smoke or Panda bear or whatever. Um, they might not know who those people are, but like that stuff's not for me. Uh, but I would say if you, if you listen just a little closer, you will hear that he is doing that his his arrangements and his capacity to sort of bend sound to his will just far exceed almost anyone else working in the music and in, in the pop music industry today. Um, and uh, it's just it's wonderful to watch somebody working at that level, and wonderful to see an artist draw uh, draw his listeners and his followers into his own weird manias and personality in a way that is that is beautiful and that really shows some like a, a high degree of command for the craft. I literally have no, almost no response to that, but I do have a question. Uh, <laughs> okay. Fair. Uh, well, no, I mean, like I, 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 I you it's, know, it's, no, in look, matters it's, it's of taste, gonna, there are no, you know, uh, you know, whatever that Latin phrase is. And, um, it's not going to be for you. Um, and yeah, but no, I, I'm make, not saying it's not for me. I just literally, I have, I have so little sphere of reference. You know, I stopped listening to, you know, uh, you know, hip hop before they were calling it hip hop. I mean, like my brother was really into rap in the early, in in the eighties, the early, the first wave stuff, you know, and, um, I used to be able to do rappers delight from beginning to end and all that kind of, but I just, I don't, I, you know, I've shed it from my portfolio of things that take my time and it was a pretty easy thing to do, but I do have a thing about, I think you make a good point about the 1980s and the sort of moral panic of like lyrics and people forget, that you know, like Tipper Gore was a f- figure of Comstockish, you know, ridicule um, back then, and um, the Parents Media Resource Center. Yeah, and so I have their a list of the filthy fifteen, you know, and like uh, they they got he- like they literally got hearings on Capitol Hill. Yeah, you know, I remember all that stuff. I mean, and I remember well, I, I, we can have debates about the merits of any of that stuff later, but I have a theory that the that moral panic was almost exclusively about white baby boomers freaking out about what their white suburban kids were listening to and they got all this pushback on it and um uh and and that sort of argument of you know uh going after censorship labeling all that kind of stuff popular music kind of went by the wayside and part of my theory about why it has never come back and cannot come back is that now white suburban kids um listen to hip-hop and you can't and you there's not and but the problem is so do black kids and or the challenge i should say i'm not saying it's a problem i'm not making a moral judgment this is just a political analysis thing and you do not have any Democrats or really any Republicans 
that have the fire in the belly to take on African-American popular culture and withstand the charges of racism that will come from it. Um, so that it's just, it's basically a booby trap at this point and people move on. But it is kind of, a, th this dynamic to me is kind of fascinating where you have people's whole careers destroyed by using the N-word analytically and not pejoratively. Um, and this vast teeming ocean of a reservoir of N-words is, is allowed to operate independently with almost none of the sort of cancel culture people wanting to touch it for precisely these kinds of cultural radioactivity issues. And, um, uh, and it's just, a, it, it's an interesting disconnect given that it's the sort of the censorious attitude has taken down stand-up comics. It has taken down all sorts of other pop culture. There are all sorts of like movies you couldn't make today, all sorts of scenes you can't do today, all sorts of things you can't say anymore. But the one safe harbor remains this slice of, of the music industry, which I just think is kind of fascinating. Am I wrong? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess to me, I just sort of think people have moved on and in part realized that this was sort of a, a silly preoccupation. Um, and, you know, I, I also but it's a think silly preoccupation it's not, it's, to try to cancel black stand up comics who use well, hopefully, the N word. Hopefully, we will, hopefully, we will move on from some uh, of today's preoccupations as well. Uh, it's not. You know, it's it wasn't just about rap in the 1980s, especially in the early part of the 1980s. Uh, rap no, no, that's my point. Is it wasn't deal. about rap. My point is, it was about like Twisted Sister and yeah, and yeah. and Ozzy Osbourne and Quiet Riot right. and all and these kinds of things. Heavy metal was a big uh, bugaboo yeah. in the 1980s, and even in the I was actually just looking at this for a thing that I may be writing uh, in the in the mid late 90s. You know, the gangster rap hearing that Joe Lieberman gave a long grumpy speech at the beginning of um was also focused on marilyn manson who interestingly um appeared with kanye west at uh his performance of his album this last week and kanye is making an effort to sort of showcase these problematic figures and and try to bring them into his fold in ways that i just think are really sort of fascinating i also just think as like a, a pop culture suicide squad well <laughs> i i don't i don't exactly feel like i know what he's doing but it's it feels a little um it feels more relevant and more dangerous uh than a lot of other stuff that's out there and i kind of like that and uh i i'm i mean i'm also just he's a he's a phenomenal producer uh just like i said on a craft level and i i so my uh the the obsession i have that like i think my the people who follow me for cocktails and politics and movies stuff um are most annoyed by is that i really love speakers and like sound systems and like kanye produces music that is designed to be played on like, like a on good sound systems that really let you hear every little thing all right so uh very quickly on the cocktail front um i i think i i'm a well-known advocate of alcohol um it's good stuff um, i stand by my, my my position is 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 authentic because i stand by what i say um but i've always been a little more skeptical of the, on the mixology front um not because i don't like a really wonderful like one of the best cocktails i've ever had in my life i watched this guy in this place in prague make a 
a gin and tonic and it took them 10 minutes to make it, which was kind of amazing for basically a two ingredient thing. Um, but it was wonderful to watch and it was really a special thing. It had rosemary in it. It was great. But on the whole, um, I'm a little skeptical of the, the, the theatricality of it. Um, is, is the cocktail obsession more because it's fun to be the cocktail maker or do you think it really adds that much added value to the final product? So I, I think there's there's both here for sure. And there are people who are uh, completely obsessed with how cocktails look on Instagram and um, and bars themselves uh, really do strive to create a kind of a, a theatrical experience, you know, to some degree or another, even even bars that um, seem less fussy. Right. They will they really focus on the customer experience um, because. Uh, they want people to feel comfortable and feel taken care of in the same way that to whatever degree, you know, uh, uh, I mean, hotels and airlines even, you know, focus on, right? People, you're, you're in this, in this specialized environment where they, where you want to, they, you, you ideally want to feel comfortable and they want to find ways at whatever price point you are at to make you feel comfortable. Um, and so that's a big part of the bar world and of the, the cocktail world. Sure. And there are people who just like it for that aspect. But to me, it's about the drinks and about the drinks specifically uh, and not about how you know beautiful they look and with your garnishes and how, you know, and you know, whether or not this bar has like this particular kind of leather seating or anything. No, it's about the drinks and it's about the ingredients and it's about the precision um, and it's about the history. And so uh, to me, a great cocktail is a little like a magic trick, right? It's a seamless performance and it is a performance in some ways, though it's one that you experience not just by looking at it, but by consuming it. Um, and it, if, you, if you've had a truly excellent really, really well-made cocktail um, with a bunch of ingredients that you've never heard of that just perfectly hits the spot. It's, it's just a revelation. And, and it's just a sort of, it's, it's a little tiny miracle in, you know, in, in three or four ounces in a glass. And it's absolutely wonderful. Um, and just like with magic, you can go and find out how these tricks are done. And also like magic, you learn that there's a bunch of standards, right? So like, uh, so the, the way you make an elephant or a horse or a cow disappear off a stage, right? Like the, there's just a couple of ways that like magicians do that. And then they put their own stamp on it. But it's like, these are standard tricks that they're learning. And so with cocktails, which you're learning what I, and what I try to sort of focus on in the newsletter and try to teach people is that all cocktails follow a number virtually all well-made kind of modern craft cocktails, I should say, tend to follow a number of fairly standard basic forms. And everything are, is derived from these consistent forms. Um, and once you kind of learn how these things operate, then you can start working within them. You can make other drinks uh, that, that sort of work from those, from those forms and those conventions yourself. You can also identify them when they're on cocktail menus, which is super fun, like learning to read a cocktail menu. Where you see, oh, actually, these like all these drinks have whatever goofy names and these six ingredients that I've never read. This some kind of bitters that's like comes from a country I don't even know the capital of, and then you realize, wait, this is just a really fancy sazerac. 
It's a fancy, <laughs> right? That's what it is. That somebody has taken a Sazerac and they have modded it and modded it and iterated it and made something else from it. Um, or it's a bamboo or a, right. Like it's a, one of these sort of like basic level cocktails that somebody has has taken and reinvented and made into something you know, made into a kind of art object, but an art object that you can consume. And ideally, these things are not just, again, not just to be looked at and not just to be kind of intellectually marveled over. If you make these things right, they just, they just genuinely taste wonderful. And I would, I would say, like, if you don't believe me, first of all, go to a really good bar and just order a very standard drink. If you're in Washington, D.C., go to the Columbia Room and ask them to make you an old-fashioned it will not taste like an old fashioned made at your corner bar. Your corner bar might be a wonderful place, um, but it's but very few of them are really, really rigorously focused in the way that the Columbia Room, which uh, a couple of years ago won, an, won one of the major industry awards for the best bar in the country. Um, it is uh, it, it is it's super innovative, um, super rigorous, very high standards. In fact, uh, it was the their earlier iteration of that bar back when it was a secret bar behind a dive bar was the first place that I ever had craft cocktails, I believe back in 2010, it just kind of blew my mind. And I, over the next couple of years, kind of wanted to learn how to make those things myself. Um, and, you know, it, then also there was Donald Trump, and that's part of the origin story here. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, but like, yeah, uh, Donald Trump uh, factors into my cocktail origin story here. Uh, but, um, if you have ever, like, in, almost in the same way that you can go to, you can go to a, everybody understands that, that a, a steak at a Ruby Tuesdays is not going to be as good as a steak at a really good steakhouse. It's just a steak. It's just a ribeye either way. But somebody has put a lot of time and care into selecting exactly the right piece of meat, into cooking it exactly perfectly. And the same thing is true with drinks. And there are people out there, there are bartenders who, who are focused on making it exactly right every single time. And what's really, what's, what I like to do is sort of teach people how to do some of the basic elements of that. Maybe not every bit of it, but a lot of the basic elements um, at home, because a lot of those tricks can be learned. A lot of those methods and techniques are things that can be taught. And they do take some, some time and some effort, but the time and effort is fun because projects are fun. Um, and at the end of this of of the project, what do you have? You don't just ha you don't you have a wonderful drink, and you have a wonderful drink that you can make that you can consume for yourself that you can make again, but also something you can share with other people. And this is the thing that I feel like I have learned most about cocktail making is I like the making, I like the experimenting. I have set up like all of my social media feeds to just show me dozens of recipes every day, and I'm so I'm constantly just sort of like seeing new stuff and thinking about it. Um, I have dozens of cocktail books. I'm I'm a nerd and I like the nerd knowledge aspect of it, but what I really like is making things for other people. And cocktails are a, a, like a little gift that you can give to somebody else and they're a way that you can connect with people um, and share with them and, and often can be kind of icebreakers with people who you don't know as well or perhaps you live in Washington, D.C. and talk about politics for a living and there are a lot of very strong disagreements. This is a way of getting to know people outside of that and finding some, right, having a little object between you to talk about, to sort of show them, to say, look, I would like to be, like, I would like to con conduct this discussion on friendly terms. Um, and so, 
you know, you can do that with a glass of wine, but something that you have made, something that you have put a little bit of yourself into and prepared for somebody else, uh, goes further than, than just a glass of wine and a, a cheese plate. And that's what cocktails are. Um, and again, you can learn to do this stuff at home and it's, it's much less expensive if you do it. No, that's, that's all very well said. And, um, um, I'm, the, the Birking platoon case for cocktails is one I'm very sympathetic <laughs> to. Um, very quickly, what do you call a cocktail that is mostly chilled vodka with a splash of vermouth? With a splash of vermouth. So that is a vodka martini. I just, I would call it that. I wouldn't drink it because I don't drink vodka martinis. Okay, so we've lost the, 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 the lexicological fight and you think that vodka martini is a thing. It's just, because like originally it was what, a kangaroo or a sidecar or whatever? Um, it's not a sidecar. A sidecar is a cognac drink. Um, so vodka martini took over. And if you, and in fact, if you, uh, in the, certainly by the 1970s or 1980s, if you ordered a martini and didn't specify anything, you were likely to get uh, chilled vodka, maybe with a little bit of vermouth and maybe not even any vermouth at all. Um, in many cases, uh, you would Is just it James Bond's fault. Start vodka stirred over ice, and that's it. Um, it's a little bit James Bond's fault. It's a little bit the fault of the Russians, uh, who have never, you know, like I mean. Uh, it is not an accident that during the Cold War, the spirit of choice for many Americans was vodka and that vodka sort of took over American spirit sales over. And it's now been declining as a percentage of sales and like whiskey is about to take it over. I don't know if it actually has uh, or not yet. Um, but what happened with that was that people lost the taste for gin and gin uh, is not to everyone's taste. And it took me a little while to learn to, to like it and appreciate it. But gin, if you... If you prepare gin properly, it is the right just gin. Yeah. wonderful. So yeah. the right, but there are many right gin. Sure, sure, I mean, sure, sure. There's there's a lot of good ones out there, um, and gin can be just wonderful. And a gin martini is just a wonderful drink if you put a little bit of effort into it and make it right, um, and you know, and figure out what and and making it right isn't necessarily going to be the same for you, Jonah, as it is for me. Everyone uh, gets, every, you know, we'll have like the martini in particular is one of these drinks where, like, when I wrote a, a, the newsletter I did uh, on on martinis um, was was titled "11 Rules for Martinis," right? And it's like, here are the things that I think are sort of are for me are must-haves within the the world of martinis, but like to, for a drink to truly be a good martini. On the other hand, there's a huge amount of variation within that, and so part of like making these drinks at home is learning exactly your own personal taste and specifications. Um, and then part of it is also, and then you could sort of take that and go a step further. You can learn all of your friends. And so this is a thing that I like to do is I know each, many of my colleagues at Reason, many of my close friends who come over and I make them drinks and I know their tastes and I will design drinks or pick drinks specifically for them. And so learning people through their taste in cocktails, you actually learn something about them. You learn how they interact with food and drink. Um, you learn how they think about things what, and what their tastes are. And so it's not just a way of making sort of, it's not just a friendly gesture. It's an opportunity to get to know something about somebody else um, and to show them that you have actually thought a little bit about who they are and what they like and taken some care to provide that. Um, I, I could do this all day. Um, and clearly for some people, it probably feels that way, um, already. Uh, but we'll have you back. Hopefully you'll come back and, um, 
um, maybe we'll start with cocktails next time. And because um, I have, I have, I have opinions. But um, it was great to have you on here. And please, Thanks for having me. Please give my best to your lovely bride. You are one of these people who followed the advice that I followed, which is marrying up. Um, and uh, um, and again, my condolences on the the loss of your dog, who was a very Thank special you. guy. And the only cure for losing a dog is getting another dog. But that's a conversation for another time. Hopefully soon. Um, Thank you so much for having me on. All right. So uh, Peter has left the building. Uh, My apologies to people who uh, sent in all sorts of suggestions for things we were supposed to talk about that we did not get to. Um, As we were saying after the recording stopped, neither of us anticipated talking about Afghanistan for as long as we did. But um, uh, such is the nature of the beast that uh, these things happen. And um, but I thought it was a good conversation. Would love to have him back. Uh, let me know what you think about all of it. And uh, my apologies to the listeners, or I should say to readers. I did not do a Friday G file. Uh, business stuff just destroyed my day. Um, but I'm hoping to get back on schedule and uh, have a very exciting uh, next episode of The Remnant as well coming up. I don't want to jinx it by telling you who it is, but um, I think it's going to be great. And uh, thanks again to Peter Sutterman. Thank you all for listening. And I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Podcast.